following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Man, am I ever excited to get back into the book of John. Um, It has been too long, hasn't it? It's been so long that some of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, For several years now, we have been going through the Gospel of John a bit at a time, and we'll do, you know, maybe a paragraph or two on a Sunday, and we'll do that for four or five weeks, and then we'll move on to something else, some other topic or some other book of the Bible. And we've been doing this for a long time, and, um, but, but we haven't done it in almost a year. I couldn't believe it had been so long, and I don't know how I let it go so long because I love the Gospel of John. I love preaching from the Gospel of John. Um, so if you started coming to Artisan, you know, since this time last year, since last summer, this is the first time you've, you've done this with us, which is uh, kind of amazing to me. But in part because it's been so long, and uh, also just because I think this is good to do once in a while, I want to give just a couple of minutes of uh, maybe Bible 101 orientation to what we're, where we are in the Bible and, and what, what that means for us, okay? So, so from, for some of you who are Bible nerds, for one, one reason or another, this will be review. But for some of you who are maybe new to studying the scriptures, this might be helpful to you in kind of placing ourselves where we ought to be um, when we're studying this particular book. John is one of four Gospels in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, the the books that contain the stories of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They're called the Gospels, and they are the first four books of the New Testament, the Christian Scriptures. Not Not very big portion at the end of your Bible. Um, these scriptures come to us from the original language in which they're written, which is primarily Greek. Of course, we read them in English. Uh, and by the way, when you hear somebody say, well, the, you can't trust the Bible, it's been translated thousands and thousands of times, that is, the second part of that sentence is kind of true. We've translated a bunch of times in a bunch of different ways, but we always go back to the Greek when we translate it. It's not like we translated it once and then translated that English into a more modern English and then translated that English into a more modern English so that we have this kind of... Uh, scriptural game of telephone, where a lot of stuff gets deteriorated and degraded and lost over time. No, every time the new translation is made, it goes back to the original text, and, it, and it's made uh, in a language and um, idiom that, that's fitting for the day, right? Uh, the Older Testament, the Old Testament, the, the Jewish scriptures, which make up the, the majority of, of our Bible, um, were written primarily in Hebrew, and we translate those to English as well. What's interesting is that uh, at the time of Jesus, the Jews would read their scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, but they would read it in Greek, mostly, because that was the, the uh, what do you call it, the um, vernacular. Uh, and so there's a translation of the Hebrew Jewish scriptures into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. That's super-duper Bible nerd stuff. You don't really need to know that, but it might come into play in a minute. I might make a passing reference to it at least. We'll see. Uh, But once again, the book of John is one of four Gospels to tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in these four Gospels, there are some stories that overlap, that are repeated from one to the next, and there are some stories which appear only in one of the four Gospels. The Gospel of John, having been written quite a bit later than the other three, uh, relatively late, still pretty early in the, in the history of Christianity, um, is the most different one. It has the most unique stories. Um, 
Now, when these stories uh, overlap, you see different details in them, right? And sometimes that can be a little bit difficult to figure out. Uh, Sometimes people make challenges to the authority or reliability of the Bible because the stories are told in slightly different ways. Uh, It doesn't particularly bother me most of the time when the stories overlap and there are different details. Just as we tell different stories from different angles, the the ancient writers of the Bible told stories from different angles. So I was yesterday, um, as you can see from my face, in direct sunlight for several hours um, at the minor league baseball park in Buffalo with my family. And we were sitting in left field watching the game. Now, if I were to tell you the story of a particular play that happened in that game, I would tell it with different details than somebody who was sitting in right field, or someone who was sitting behind home plate, or somebody who was watching the game on television, or somebody who was hearing the game on the radio. So uh, the fact that there are little differences and nuances in the way the stories are told ought not to trouble us as much as maybe some people think it should. Granted, there are times when it's difficult to figure out exactly what might be going on, And as a matter of fact, today's story is a little bit one of those stories, because this story is one of the few that appears in all four Gospels, and the details do change from story to story a little bit. Enough so that some people think, this happened twice, and John is telling it about one occasion, and Luke is telling it about a different occasion. I actually think they're talking about the same event for reasons I don't need to go into right now, Um, but... uh, The anointing of Jesus is something that does appear in all four Gospels. And in one of the tellings, not John's, but one of the tellings, Jesus himself says, what this woman has done, which you'll find out what she did in a minute, uh, will be told all around the world. It will be told forever. And it's kind of neat that it appears in all four of the Gospels, and we are still talking about it today. But the Gospel writers choose the stories that they're going to put in their Gospels and the particular details about those stories and the order in which they arrange those stories, they choose, make all of those uh, artistic, authorly decisions for reasons, right? And so when we read this story in this Gospel, we ought to pay attention to where it falls in the arc of the narrative and also pay attention to the details which are drawn out. And that's really what we're going to do today. Um, So if you would like to open a Bible and begin to find John chapter 12, that's where we're going to look in just a minute. Um, um, But before we look at John chapter 12, I want to remind you or tell you for the first time, if you've never heard, what happened in John chapter 11. Now, once again, we've covered this, but it was last July, so you may have forgotten In John chapter 11, uh, one of Jesus' good friends, Lazarus, gets sick. And uh, his sister Mary and Martha are there as well. He receives word of this, and the family clearly wants him to come and heal Lazarus. But he doesn't. He delays, and uh, thank you, Josiah, Lazarus dies. Mary Mary and Martha are beside themselves, they're despondent. Mary won't even come out to see Jesus at first. Jesus comes and finds that his friend has died and he weeps. It's the easiest verse in the Bible to memorize. John eleven thirty eight. Jesus wept. We all chose that when we had to memorize a Bible verse in summer camp. Um, but Jesus says, take the stone away from the tomb. And they say, no, Jesus, he's, I'm not sure if you caught this detail, but he's been dead for four days. And 
there's going to be a stench. And Jesus says, take the stone away. And he calls in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man stands up and walks out of the tomb, still covered in the grave wrappings. And Jesus says, take off the wrappings. And Lazarus is alive. That's the, the huge miracle that happens in John chapter 11. And so John chapter 12 starts this way. Um, I have it as 1 through 11, verses 1 through 11 here. I think I'm just going to read the first eight verses for now. We'll see if we get any further than that. Uh, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now here I'll pause and tell you that a denarius was a unit of money that was uh, the typical payment that a, a laborer would receive for one day's labor. So 300 denarii would be almost a year's wages for, a, for an, um, a worker. Why was this perfume not sold and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, I want to pause for a moment and address that last statement. Um, you'll always have the poor with you. That's not where I want to land primarily for this sermon, but I, do, I, I also don't want to um, pretend it's not there because it is a little bit of a disturbing statement, isn't it? It's not something we want necessarily to hear Jesus saying because he seems to be being, seems that he's being dismissive of the poor. You'll always have them with you. You won't always have me. Now, in a vacuum, that seems kind of troubling. And uh, in our modern-day political vacuum, it becomes very troubling because certain politicians have occasionally, when asked what they're going to do for the poor, said things like, well, biblically, we know that the poor will always be with us. Essentially saying, uh, nothing is what I'm going to do for the poor. Jesus himself said, it's just a fact of life. Some people are poor, some people are rich, some people are middle class, uh, something, something macroeconomics, right? But we can't read it in a vacuum. We are not allowed to read Scripture in a vacuum. So here's what you might not know. What you might not know is that Jesus, when he says, the poor you will always have with you, is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Hebrew Scriptures. Specifically, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15. Now, we're going to do a whole series on Deuteronomy in October. And we're going to especially focus on the places that Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And we will spend one whole week on this one. So, I'm going to give that sermon later. It's a sermon for another day, and it's actually a specific day for once. (laughs) But for now, I want you to know that the meaning is almost exactly the opposite of what I've just described, of all those disturbing kind of dismissive of the poor motions that people make around this verse. It was... Uh, in no way a dismissal of the poor in its original context in Deuteronomy, right? And Jesus, remember, is in a much more biblically literate 
culture than we are in. And so when he quotes the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, his Bible and the people's Bible that's around him, he knows that they know the context and the story and so forth. So he can leave things unsaid. He can, he can uh, know and assume that they've read the whole bit and they have it memorized, probably, many of them. So I promise it's not the dismissal of the poor that sounds like. Come back in October if you want to hear the details. Or you could study it on your own. Um, but for the purposes of today's story from the Gospel of John, it's the second half of that statement which will really hit home. You will not always have me with you. And so now, at long last, I, I do want to talk about anointing. Do you remember anointing? It's, a, it's in the sermon title, The Anointing of Jesus. Anoint, which by the way has only two ends, doesn't, it's one at the beginning of the word and one at the end of the word. Right? A little spelling B pet peeve of mine. A-N-O-I-N-T. Is not a word that we use very often. What it actually means in English, does anybody know what the word anoint means in English? It means to smear or rub or coat something as with an oil. Right? Well, we don't say, uh, I want to saute some onions, let me anoint my frying pan with olive oil. <laughs> but that's basically what you do. Biblically, the word anointing is very significant because, as you Bible nerds will no doubt know, it's the ritual by which kings were named. So if you look in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, when the Israelites demand of God that he place over them a human king like their neighbors have, the prophet Samuel identifies who the king will be by anointing him, by pouring out oil from a horn onto his head. Now, if you were reading the Old Testament in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, remember, that is the Septuagint, the word there when Samuel anoints Saul would be creo. C-H-R-I-O. Do you know any other words in the Bible that start with C-H-R-I? <laughs> now, Christmas was not in the Bible, but that's a very good guess. <laughs> when Jesus is called Christ, that's not his last name. It's a title. It means anointed king which is a very subversive title to give him, by the way, in the Greco-Roman world. So, when the Gospel writer John says that Mary anointed Jesus with this perfume, it would be natural for us to think, from what we know of the biblical story, that this was a way of signifying that Jesus was God's anointed king for that time. It would be normal to think that, but you would be wrong, I think. Because as it turns out, there are two different Greek words which are both translated into the English word anoint. One is creo, from which we get Christ, which is the Messiah, the anointed king. 
That's used all the time when the kings are anointed in the Old Testament. It's also used of when the, the Israelites set up their tabernacle. There are certain special uh, royal sacrifices that need to be made, and those spots in the temple are also anointed, or in the tabernacle, excuse me, are also anointed. But there's another Greek word which we translate into the English word anoint. I don't know why we have two words from another language to translate into one word in our language which we don't even know, but that's the way it happens. The other word is alepho. You don't have to remember this, but you might be interested to know that there are two different words. Alepho is not used, as far as I can tell, ever of anointing a king. It is used in John chapter 12 when it says Mary anointed Jesus' feet. Other biblical uses of this word refer to cleansing things or washing them or most poignantly in Mark 16 of embalming a body. So in Mark 16, uh, after Jesus has been crucified and laid in the tomb, uh, remember they couldn't do anything the next day because it was the Sabbath, and so the women come the day after the Sabbath in the morning. As soon as the sun rises, they're allowed to go about their business and do some work, and so they bring spices to the tomb for what purpose? Alepho. They're anointing, they're intending to anoint the body of Jesus to prepare it for its permanent resting place. And of course, they find that he's not there. So when Mary anoints Jesus in this way in John chapter 12, it is not, in my opinion, a sign that he will be raised up as a king, but rather a sign that he will be lowered down as a corpse. John chapter 12 is a story about death. And when you realize that, the other details of the story begin to become more poignant. If you think about it, death is literally all around Jesus in this house. Who's reclining right next to him at the table? Lazarus, who himself was dead not that long ago. Now do you see that when Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you, but you won't always have me with you, he's not saying, You'll always have poor people, but you won't always have an awesome Messiah. I mean, that's, that's potentially true in some ways as well, I suppose. What he's saying is, the poor will be here. I'm going to be dead. And when Jesus rebukes Judas and says, leave her alone. By the way, do you notice that Jesus tells people to leave women alone in the Bible a lot? Amen. How many women walking down the street in the city by yourself wish that Jesus was there to tell all the men, leave her alone? When he tells Judas to leave her alone, what does he say in verse 7? She bought this perfume so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. The new, RS, the new Revised Standard Version, your red Bibles there, if you're using one, uses burial. That word actually is much closer to embalming. She brought this perfume to embalm my body. This is a story about death. 
But because it is also a story about Jesus, it is a story about the defeat of death. Because that is what Jesus does. Jesus defeats death. He had done it in the chapter before, John chapter 11. He would do it again himself in John chapter 20. Which we will get to, by my calculations, roughly the time my younger son graduates from college. (laughs) But don't worry, we'll get the resurrection in there uh, every year, (laughs) even if it's not from the book of John. The death of Lazarus resulted in a rotten stench that filled the tomb, but the death of Jesus was prefigured with a perfume that filled the room with a beautiful fragrance. Is that too poetic? Is it too hard to derive some bit of doctrine from that statement? How beautiful it is that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and removed the stink of death and that in the next story in the gospel, John chooses to put this one where death is prefigured not with rotten smell but with beautiful fragrance. My goodness. So this lavish Worship of Jesus, for which Mary is scolded, is the worship of a dead man. But it's the worship of a dead man who would rise again. I would like to ask you to meditate on a few questions now. So uh, if you want to close your eyes, you can. I don't insist on that, but... Do whatever you need to do to clear your mind for a moment. I want to ask you some questions. I want, you to, I want to ask you to think about some of these things in this way. If you, like me, are a Christian, you worship Jesus. Do you worship him as a king who's been raised up or as a corpse who has been lowered down? When you place your faith, that is to say your trust in Jesus, are you seeking to raise yourself to heaven in the hereafter? Or do you believe that he can and does redeem the brokenness and the death that we see all around us in the here and now? What would it look like to answer both of those questions with the word both? And lastly, what deep pain do you have in your life right now? And can you trust Jesus with it?
Later on in the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the churches and he's talking to them about communion, which we are about to celebrate together this morning. And this is what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now hear this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I would submit to you that we do serve a risen king, anointed and lifted up, but we also serve and worship a man who died. And that at the table of the Lord, where all of his disciples, all of his followers, even the ones who are completely messed up, are invited to come. We ought not to skip so quickly to the resurrection. We ought to remember that Paul says we are proclaiming his death. After all, the bread is his broken body. The cup holds his shed blood. And so I invite you now, when you come to communion, if you choose to do so, to remember his death, not only to remember it, but to proclaim it as you receive it into your own body. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.